0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time time
1: for Taiwan This Week.
0: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh... Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a state visit to Pacific allies, renewed calls for the Dalai Lama to visit Taiwan, plans to revise crowd control measures, a dispute between Honhai and Microsoft, and a religious freedom forum. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen outlying guidelines, she says, will help the government counter China's one country, two systems formula for unification. Tsai says China's proposal poses a serious national security challenge and government agencies will now be taking steps to reinforce security and prevent the country's economic and social order from being impacted by Beijing. Under the guidelines, according to Tsai, cross-strait relations must be viewed in a positive way, but only when the principle of equal dignity is safeguarded. The guidelines state that the government must closely monitor changes in China's political, economic and social conditions and take measures to prevent China's media manipulation targeting Taiwan. And they also seek to increase the defence budget it in order to upgrade military capabilities and call for the development of a consensus on cross-strait policy to safeguard national sovereignty. So, Ross, lofty words, not really anything new, but, I mean, she's calling it the guidelines to counter one country, two systems.
1: Well, I think you hit all the key points within one sentence. Right? It's not anything new in the sense that China has been threatening Taiwan for Uh, years (laughs) into the past and even more so during the term of of President Tsai Ing-wen and doing so with specific policies. So, for example, last year around this time, there was these 31 measures and the government here made a big to-do about having a response. And then when they finally did announce a response... uh, weeks later, um, it, not only was it perceived as taking too long, but it was perceived as not anything new. It was just repeating some earlier policies. And frankly, we haven't heard much about that, right? We don't hear people saying like, well, the countermeasures to the 31 measures have been successfully implemented, and here's how many people have availed themselves of the measures and, and companies that have availed themselves of the measures, et cetera. Uh, maybe they have, but we haven't heard anything uh, about it. Uh, as far as, you um, you know, measures and, 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 and guidelines, and we've heard this so many times before in the context across straight relations as well, or numbered lists, right? So there's always uh, three no's, four you better not's, five uh, don't dare do it's, and we seem to just be following that pattern. I think it tends to get lost in, 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 in the... Uh, you know, f- public space, right? So ultimately, we're trying to safeguard Taiwan's security. Taiwan's economic security, obviously national security, military security. Announcing another list of measures when when the government has already done this multiple times just in the last year, six months, where President Tsai, she's made speeches to military officials where there were numbered lists about things we're not going to let China do, things we want to encourage you to do as as the military. Uh, So now we're, we're just coming up with another numbered list. It's a little unclear how that really encourages people here in Taiwan to take these things seriously or if they're going to faithfully uh, participate in these ideas or, or what really is the substance here other than a numbered list of announcements.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's this tendency of the Chinese government to announce numbered lists directed towards Taiwan, and Taiwan, on the other hand, to announce its own numbered lists to counter China. And this has happened more than once. Um, the 31 measures, interesting, have been... It's about the one-year anniversary since they were announced, and there has been countermeasures that have been announced by the uh, Taiwanese government under Premier William Lai and now Premier Su Chang. And so it's interesting now that this comes at this time, though, because I think that uh, this is about the one-year anniversary of the 31 measures. Is the fact that Taiwan is announcing this now a sign of any shift? I'm not too sure, Because it has announced um, measures to counteract this in the past. But this time around, I think, versus past times, it is grounded in this discourse of one country, two systems, Um, particularly because I think after C.T. King's speech on January 2nd of this year and the kind of uh, support, the wave of popular support that Tsai got after his speech um, was by standing up to the claim that, against the claim that, Uh, one country systems would be all right for Taiwan because this was what C was still framing uh, efforts to realize unification under the framework of one country two systems and it's become debated again with regards to presidential elections coming up uh, the KMP's cross-strait policies and so forth um, whether you know people are going with this one country uh, two systems framework or not. Um, even the People First Party head claimed that nobody in Taiwan is interested in the, the the one country, two systems framework, and he tried to paint this as the time is raising all these kind of false alarms and uh, trying to get people on edge and so forth. Um, but this does reflect what the discourse on uh, on on uh, cross-rate issues is currently, or, or unification independence issues, and a lot of it has, has to do with the resurfacing of uh, the specter of one country, two systems
0: because you mentioned the 31 points there, Brian. Of course, a website containing the 31 great points from China was also the target of the news this week, with the government saying, we're going to take it down.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's come up, how how to address uh, China's means of uh, trying to influence Taiwan. And I think that has become an issue in the past. You saw in the past year with uh, espionage charges against, for example, new party members for running a website that was said to be a Chinese spy in her attempt to form one. Um, with regards to these websites, this, sometimes it's, it's a question because these websites might be registered to Taiwan or uh, they might be registered to the US. I mean, the website in question is registered to GoDaddy, which is quite common for Taiwanese websites. Um, but if it's the Chinese government trying to influence Taiwan, then then that raises some questions. Um, it's, always, it's always a measure because uh, it's always a question as to how far you can go after websites. Because you know, what extent is this propaganda? What extent is this fake news? What is this um, a valid expression of political be- beliefs? And these are all hard lines to draw sometimes in Taiwan. Well, of course,
0: Ross, going back to TIES guidelines,
2: increasing the defense
1: budget. Can you see this happening? Well, the b- defense budget has been increasing and, and uh, I suppose the government deserves some credit for that. However, the concern is it's not increasing enough. Um, so the the dollar amount and the percentage amount the, or percentage of, of uh, GDP, I mean, whatever metric you want to use, yes, it's been increasing, but is it increasing enough to counter the threat? The answer is is frankly no. And is there public recognition of this and public support for increasing the budget uh, at a, a velocity, uh, you know, the, the, the size and within the amount of time that's necessary? Uh, I, I don't see it. Um, and then that makes it hard for legislators to actually do it, because to increase the defense budget, you're either going to have to raise more revenue or you're going to have to cut spending somewhere else. And given um, the ongoing election cycles, so uh, especially in this period where, where you have the local elections come so close, to the national election, um, once once you got past, say, 2017 you know, or midpoint or the end of 2017 and you enter 2018 in advance of the local election and then the national election follows uh, 13 months later, uh, it, it, it's really not a good period for legislators to say, well, cut back on something that goes into people's pockets or you know, let alone raise taxes – Uh, or raise other types of government fees. Uh, So this is not a great period to significantly uh, increase the defense budget, so it would be um, political risky for politicians to do that. Uh, So uh, we'll have to wait. It's not going to happen now, though.
2: Um, Yeah, it's quite interesting that this was kind of just slipped in there, because I think that the uh, the 31 measures that China propose are primarily incentives uh, directed at attracting uh, business people, uh, young people, entrepreneurs, and that kind of thing. And so, the military—that's a, 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 a boosting military spending in response to that—is is, doesn't seem it, like it's a match exactly, because this is more directed towards uh, business and you know the citizenry and so forth as, as a measure to win over Taiwanese. Um, so it could just be kind of put in there. Um, but at the same time, it does, it does raise a lot of these issues now, I think, regarding, let's say, Chinese infiltration, the fact that people are talking about all these Li Chang or, or borough chiefs, as it's normally translated, uh, perhaps being on China's payroll, having these positions as, uh, as community managers and so forth. I mean, we all know that a lot of Chinese money does come in to these roles uh, in order to subsidize trips to China and encourage cross-states settlement and so forth. I mean, it's, uh, a lot of these issues are coming up at once.
0: But, I mean, Brian, do you think a, a fifth column, to use a phrase, really exists or is <laughs> it being over-exaggerated?
2: Um, I think it does exist because just sometimes it is quite expensive. I mean the, the amount of money that does go into paying for uh, Taiwanese people to fly to china is is quite large in some parts of the country it 's quite amazing, uh, for example, particularly among indigenous communities i mean there 's a lot of money coming in there to pay for trips to China, um, which is quite amazing but then how do you how do you deal with this? I mean how do you uh, point to the evidence that you know someone is acting on behalf of China and that this is not just money they 're taking it 's as a valid donation or just to pay for a vacation and that
1: the, the so-called united front efforts are behind us well i'm not sure that uh, there's a fifth column of borough chiefs given how little influence they have and and uh, if you're looking at electoral politics if we're talking about a kmt uh, borough chief then they were already in the kmt they already were encouraging their uh, constituents to vote for KMT candidates for higher level office, whether it's city councilor, mayors, legislators, or president. So yeah, I'm not sure that we need to worry uh, about borough chiefs taking trips to China uh, or or to go. You know, something that keeps getting discussed is you know legal bans, you know bans on on certain classifications of people traveling to China, whether it's former government officials, former generals. We're going to increase the length. Uh, so much discussion in the past year about professors who, who took teaching assignments short-term at, 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 at universities in China. Now we're talking about borough chiefs. You could go so far as to to penalize it, um, you know, but every time these ideas are floated, then there's also a negative reaction, and, and we saw that for example with the proposal uh, to penalize people who accepted the new uh, identity card that China was issuing to Taiwanese residents of China, and, and you know, people People said, well, this actually isn't fair. People have a right to travel. Uh, so, the, if you want to go so far as to ban all levels of elected officials, down to the borough chief, uh, from taking a free trip, uh, free trip from China, uh, you, you could do that. I think you'll uh, just uh, create a lot of negative sentiment towards the government, and you probably won't accomplish much. For starters, a lot of people will break the law, right? So, <laughs> so, so they'll find other ways to get the money, right? So if you say uh, you can't take money from a Chinese government agency, uh, well, then China will pay through an NGO, and if you change the law to, say, NGOs, then... China will have a corporate entity, right? or they'll have an entity in Hong Kong. I mean, you'll have to keep rewriting the law to keep up with the ways uh, that are created to get around it. So they, you know, then what are you going to do? You're going to start finding people. You're going to start arresting the borough chief. You know, if you start arresting the borough chief, people get mad because the roads or the, in their neighborhood won't get fixed, or if they have a complaint with a the neighbor, there's no one to call because their borough chief's in jail for going to Nanjing. I mean, you know, where do you end this? So you know, the best thing Taiwan can do to counter these things is is to instill in the people Here in Taiwan, a sense of uh, protecting Taiwan and being careful of China's tactics. But it doesn't help to use scare tactics. When I say scare tactics, I mean if if a trip by a borough chief to China is – innocuous. They're not coming back to brainwash anyone. As I said, if they're KMT-affiliated, that's why they're probably taking the trip anyway. They're they're not going to come back and say anything different than they would have said if they hadn't taken the trip. So, you know, let China waste their money on these things.
2: Um, yeah, I think the concern is that the borough chiefs actually take a lot of their local constituency with them. And so that creates, a, that's the basis for a patronage at work. I and mean, a lot of these people might have swung KMT anyway, but it is, it is a good way to actually win over voters. But I, at the same time, I don't see the time mission really taking action on this when foreign ministers are, are not exactly being stopped at the airport for going to China and even taking up jobs, supposedly, and being accused of this. And so I can't imagine this being spread to borough chiefs. But there is talk of punishment. And that is maybe actually uh, something that is strangely under-discussed, that you know, there's even these proposals to strip people of their citizenship for pro-China statements. And so then that opens a whole can of legal loopholes, how far you take this in terms of uh, drawing the line or, or punishment or what
1: invalidates you from whatever. But we have to be careful, Brian, because, we, again, you, there's this pattern of floating tough responses, and whether, whether it was the 31 measures or the residence permit, the uh, change in the air routes last year where the government made all sorts of... Uh, uh, commitments, for lack of a better word, about responses that never happened. And then the same thing happened with with the airlines changing their names, uh, the names of the destination description for Taiwan. And, and some airlines even called it Taiwan, China. Uh, and, and the government said, we're going to take response. We're, you know, we're really going to hurt those airlines who did that. And then nothing actually happens. so we have to be careful about you know, floating these these ideas. And then there's never any action. Again, it it breeds cynicism. You know, people say, "Well, why? Well, how can I take the the risk seriously? If you, you, there are no punishments, or you're saying that this is so scary, we shouldn't do it." But actually, it is just the borough chief. So why are we even having this conversation again? Because right? we
0: had to. We had to get in the word trip. Because, of course, next week, President Tsai Ing-wen is taking a trip as she jets off to Palau, Nauru and the Marshall Islands. Now, Vice Foreign Minister Shu Su-jen says that Tsai is slated to focus on talks covering democratisation and sustainable development during her meetings with the leaders of the three Pacific Island allies. Now, Sir Brian, another foreign overseas trip. And, of course, there's yet to be the debate about where the magic transit stopover is going to take place.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was about to mention that, actually. Um, just, this also does fight. Follow a pattern of, of Tai going abroad anytime, and then there'd be speculation about, will Tai stop in the U.S. or elsewhere with any other uh, diplomatic, uh, uh, any country that uh, Taiwan stands to benefit from having stronger diplomatic ties with. And then Tai also has to do this usual thing of, of going abroad to Taiwan's remaining allies to ensure that they uh, do not break relations with Taiwan, that there's still good relations, that they they do not switch uh, recognition to the People's Republic of China. And so this this is happening again. Um, and I think that the, the same kind of themes get raised with regards to touting Taiwan as democracy, as ecologically friendly, as responsible, uh, sustainable, and interested in genuinely building these kind of economic ties. At the same time, um, you know, there's a the criticism that this is, is a waste of money, that Taiwan is focusing a disproportionate amount of efforts on small allies, of which it's it's larger than by a lot generally.
1: I'm interested in, in the word democratization that you used when you described the trip, uh, Gavin, because... Uh, those countries are democracies, so I'm not sure they need Taiwan's president to come and say, uh, "Let's talk about democratization." I mean, they do elect their leaders, and that's actually why there's, they still have uh, diplomatic relations with Taiwan because they keep electing leaders, uh, at least in recent years, who maintain um, the formal diplomatic relations. And there's always this debate as they enter their own election seasons because they are democracies uh, wh- whether or not the uh, other party that's running uh, will will change uh, the diplomatic relations policy and de-recognize the ROC and recognize the PRC. Let's, let's not uh, avoid the key issue here, right? The key issue, the purpose of the trip as always, it's not to talk about democratization or sustainability, it's to talk about how to maintain these formal diplomatic relations that currently exist with these countries and 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 ultimately, it usually includes uh, the largesse of the Taiwan taxpayer through aid uh, and, and other types of support for these countries, and these countries will maintain relations. They'll speak about Taiwan in international forums, so let's keep in mind the schedule where we are in the year. You have another World Health Assembly will come up in a few months, uh, and hopefully these countries will speak up for Taiwan again, as they often do at the WHA, although in recent years it hasn't really had a substantive Uh, impact on Taiwan's ability to participate. Uh, So uh, we have to look at the real politic purposes of the trip and and not say like it's all about, um, you know, nice things like democratization and sustainability.
0: I'm going to be cynical now, Brian. (laughs) So the real purpose of the trip, is it to fly to Guam, Hawaii or somewhere else, first of all, on the way back?
2: Um, it's a question. It's hard to say. I mean, I think it, the ball is really in the U.S. court at this point. I mean, you have the passage of, let's say, the the, the Taiwan Travel Act and all this talk and, and campaigning for a visit by a U.S. president or, or not. You know, there's also the debate around that and would that actually happen? Um, and so that's 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 the question. Um, I think this time also, just uh, to add to what Ross said, that it's also a domestic issue that Tsai needs to maintain the appearance of, uh, that, that she's doing enough to maintain Taiwan's current diplomatic allies, because this will be used against her in elections this, next year by the KMT, uh, claiming that she's not doing enough and that she's worsening the situation. And that's why all these diplomatic allies are, are breaking off relations um, as a sign of a deteriorating situation. And so Tsai also is, is maybe does have that in mind as well. So I think this time is interesting, because uh, there's also, yeah... Yeah, I mean, just, uh, we'll have to see, um, there are these attacks that are stepping up from the like, KMT.
0: Right, and we'll move on from the trip, because we had to touch that quickly, because we can talk about that another week. Now, Tibet (laughs) made the news this week in Taiwan when Tibetans living here and their supporters rallied in Taipei, marking the 60th anniversary of the 1959 uprising against Chinese rule. And, well, they were calling for more international support to help end decades of Chinese oppression there. Now, new power party lawmaker Freddie Lim attended the rally to voice his support for the Tibetan cause, and he announced plans to launch a petition urging the The government to invite the Dalai Lama to visit Taiwan sometime this year. Now, according to Lim, the visit would only focus on religious issues, but he says he believes actively inviting the Tibetan spiritual leader to Taiwan is the best way to show the world that, well, Taiwan is different from China.
1: Well, uh, we we have to keep in mind the uh, legalities of this, so it's not so much the government inviting the Dalai Lama. if uh, legislator Lim is correct, it would be a religious organization, you know, Tibetan Buddhist organization, for example, or a university that invites uh, the Dalai Lama to give a lecture. Uh, and they would submit the application to to the government to, for, for his visa to be approved. Um, and, and then it does become a political decision for the government. It's, so it's it's not the government that's going to invite him. It's a private organization. But then it quickly does become a, a political issue um, because the government has to decide. So uh, what's happened in 2016 – 2017 and 2018 uh, every time this has been floated in the public it appears that the government has quietly told the potential inviting organizations that now the, the timing's not right we're not going to approve the application so you might for a visa so you might as well not send one in and avoid embarrassment but here's a problem Gavin if if the the visa is approved and the Dalai Lama comes to Taiwan this year one will the president meet the Dalai Lama, um, and will, will that create uh, you know, all sorts of media frenzy and discussion? Uh, what does it mean for Taiwan's view on Tibet's status within the People's Republic of China? Is the Republic of China changing its view on Tibet's status within the, with, within the, the PRC? That's a sensitive issue, and then ultimately it links back to Taiwan's own status. Uh, and and the, the probably the most important issue, though, is the perception that Approving the visa now, when you could have done it in 2016, 2017, or 2018, it almost comes across as we are doing this just to have one more thing to 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 make China um, you know, aware that we're 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 going to conduct policies that we see fit, and all that's good and fine. But you could have done that in 2016, 2017, 2018. If you do it now, it just appears like tying one saying, well, oh, I, I I'm doing this despite uh, China's criticism because I'm tough on China in advance of the presidential election." So it. it, it comes across a bit as presidential politics to approve this now when it could have been done um, in, in the first three years of her term in office. So I think she's going to be open to a lot of media criticism. And of course, it's going to come from people who would have criticized her anyway, uh, but uh, that, that doing it now. Eight months before the election. And so if they, even if they approved the visa today, the visit wouldn't be for you know, sometime in the future. So we might be looking at within six months uh, of the election, for example, if his visit is in the summer. Uh, I, I think it's a legitimate criticism, though, to say, like, was this only done to show the voters of Taiwan that you're tough on China and you're going to make decisions no matter what the criticism from China is?
0: Of course, Brian, she's probably going to take flack from both sides, whatever she does,
2: really. (laughs) I think so. I think so. And this issue has come before, um, as Ross mentioned. And it was also interesting enough, there's speculation, I think, late 2015, if I recall correctly. That Tsai had secretly invited the Dalai Lama to Taiwan. Um, that was before presidential elections. And, and the claim was that then that if she won and so forth, she would try to start off strong through inviting the Dalai Lama as sort of uh, uh, achievement right off the bat. And Tsai did meet with the Dalai Lama in 2009, but obviously things were very different then. She wasn't the president. And so uh, that was a much lower stakes meeting. Um, I think that the groups that are pushing for this, such as the New Power Party or uh, groups that are NGOs that are devoted to cross-strait, moderating cross-strait agreements, uh, human rights, and so forth, which is a coalition group, uh, they, they do want to put pressure on the Tsai administration because what they are hoping for is indeed a stronger stance against China. And they view the Dalai Lama uh, visiting Taiwan as an example of this. Um, when Lim gave a speech, which I was there at, uh, he mostly actually talked about just differentiating Taiwan from China as the main reason to do this. Well, we,
1: we, there's an important thing here, Gavin, though. The Dalai Lama in 2018 gave a speech with up media Taiwan media outlet uh, uh, Shang Bao and, and and was very clear he does not support Taiwan's independence he thinks Taiwan uh, ha- has some wonderful things such as democracy to share with the Chinese people in the mainland and, but he was explicitly clear he does not support Taiwan's independence and, and you know for those who are campaigning for him to come uh, listeners to the show tonight I mean they should keep that in mind as well like, why, why are we welcoming somebody who was so explicit in saying that Taiwan should be part of China, and obviously he did so because it's all in the context of of uh, Tibet's issues with with the government in Beijing, right? He's he's not he's, he's a nice guy, of course. He's a religious leader, and I'm sure he wants peace and all those good things. But his primary concern is is the status of Tibet and, and his own ability to reach an agreement with the government in Beijing, which is all fine. So again, it's it's like we were talking about earlier. This is all about real politics for the Dalai Lama.
0: Do you think, Brian, the Dalai Lama could be being used, which is. Uh, Not the way to use the I mean, he's being used for political—a political bouncing ball in Taiwan.
2: Um, yeah, but I think it's uh, everyone is just using each other in in politics. That's (laughs) that's what's you really. And then you say that you're friends, and you have
1: undying friendship, and so forth. And maybe the Dalai Lama, because he has a great sense of humor, would get a good laugh about that as well.
0: Maybe, probably will. He seems a nice guy, you know, and I'm sure he wouldn't
1: say anything bad about anybody. And he would come to Taiwan this week for an interview as well, hopefully.
0: He would, yeah, (laughs) maybe. I don't think so. Anyway, we'll have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. (laughs) Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now, a recent spate of disturbances outside nightclubs is leading the government to review its law and order policies, and the government in recent weeks has pushed plans to increase the number of police officers. Now, that plan has led to questions from local governments over where the extra officers would be deployed, but plans to amend two articles of the Assembly and Parade Act aimed at reducing the requirement from three to two warnings to disperse crowds before authorities can make arrests... Well, that's seen a bit of a backlash from the public, as have plans to, well, the government saying it might target crowds of three people, uh, saying that three people could be considered a threat to
2: public safety. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those cases which I think uh, law enforcement culture in Taiwan is, is quite odd. There's a series of violent crimes and there's calls for restrictive measures against them. And uh, sometimes I'm not sure that's really how it works. I mean, will people randomly start stop? I mean, will people stop randomly fighting in front of nightclubs because they're they are they are like, Okay, well punishment is more severe now that now we have two warnings instead of three and so now we're gonna have a fight and we're gonna settle things peaceably and amicably. I d I don't think that's how it works. People are drunk and they get fights into fights and this this happens. And so I'm not sure that this kind of this kind of almost legalistic attempt to scare people away from fighting in front of nightclubs is going to be helpful. It just seems like a way to score political points, and I think that uh, you always see these periodic crackdowns in nightlife, particularly in Taichung and other cities like that, after something like this happens.
1: It's just another example of of uh, this somewhat silly approach to law enforcement in Taiwan. Uh, uh, example many of us are familiar with is when there's a series of crimes or there's a high profile crime. You get an elected leader or politician says, I have ordered the police to solve this crime within 30 days, as if we know ahead of time that we could gather the, or the authorities could gather the necessary evidence and find the culprit and, and ar- arrest them within in a preordained fixed period of time. Uh, th- this is just a, a very silly response. What, the appropriate Response and we've talked about this on, on Taiwan this week for many years. Is is just the lack of training that so many frontline police officers have. Uh, some of the specialized police units in in Taiwan. Um, uh, emergency response SWAT teams, for example, they they have better training, um, better weaponry, for example. But a lot of those frontline police officers, the police who work in the local precincts, uh, they they clearly lack the training. So it's not necessarily their fault, but they clearly lack the training to deal with situations where there are rowdy people. Now if you think about it. In in, in, uh, other cities, um, even here in Asia, in Hong Kong or Singapore, uh, which have vibrant nightlifes, there are crowds of people standing outside nightclubs. They don't seem to have a problem with this too frequently. It does happen periodically, but as Brian said, that's because uh, crowds of uh, young people, um, some people might be drunk, some people might be on drugs, somebody looks at somebody's uh, boyfriend or girlfriend the wrong way, and and people get violent. Uh, But uh, how would the – what's the appropriate – way to handle this. It's not to stand there with a megaphone or a sign and say, you have been warned. You have been warned. You have been warned. And then you rest. I mean, usually if the the police are standing there, they should have the confidence in their training to uh, calmly encourage the people to uh, stop what they're doing, return back inside the club. Uh, But if they're that rowdy, you throw them up against the wall, you put the cuffs on them, and you frisk them, and you take them to the station, and, and you charge them with a crime. You don't need this whole two more war- three to two warnings and, and this, this silliness. And so again, I, I think it's the lack of training that the police have to deal with these situations that leads to this problem, and now we're finding we're, we're, we're proposing goofy solutions.
2: It's a very strange idea, actually, to men because the way the uh, Assembly and Parade Act is usually used during protests is that you have the protesters are fighting with the police or something like that, or pushing or whatever, um, and the police declares that first that first it's uh, to disperse. They declare it again and again and there's usually a large interval between the three declarations because they don't want to act as though they just disperse this political gathering forcibly and in violation of uh, freedom of assembly and so is that really going to work with the fight? I, I, I do not think so. Um, let's say a three person's fighting. Uh, are you going to really just it's, it's, not, it's not the same situation at all and so I, don't, I just don't know why this is the measure being proposed.
1: So you've heard it here first. It's the Brian Hayes three declarations of the police <laughs> before arrests. Stop.
0: Please stop. No, please stop. Please stop. You have we to go. hold a sign and yeah. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's, and it's a really small sign.
2: It's a very small sign. I often
0: wonder why why do they use such a ridiculously small sign, Yeah, Because if you're standing at the back of the crowd you're never gonna read it.
2: That's right. And I think they have to bring the sign over in a megaphone <laughs> and it's usually someone that's in charge that has to come over and do it and yeah. But, that, but yeah, that
1: goes to my, my, my point earlier, right? If if there's a police officer or a group of police officers on the scene, if people are breaking the law, then then you, as I said, you throw them up against the wall, you, you frisk them, you put the cuffs on them, you put them in the car and you take them to the police precinct, you don't give them so many chances. Oh, ideally, the police would have the, the training and the confidence uh, to try and pull people apart who, who are scuffling. I mean, look, it's not uh, necessary all the time that if... if people are pushing and shoving outside a nightclub that you'd want to arrest them. Um, you know, it could be a, a good solution. The problem is, you know, separate them. Hey, calm down. Hey, dude, why don't you go back into the club? Why don't you, um, you know, go to Seven Eleven and get another drink, get a coffee, then go back into the club. Or, you know, police should have the training to manage the situations in, in a better way. Um, or, but if somebody is violent, I mean, if somebody is is is, is has already smashed a, a glass bottle over someone else's head, you don't need to give them three warnings. You just arrest them, right? Um, so, it, it really is a training issue. And, and there's another side. To this, which is the clear lack of respect that so many members of the public have for frontline police officers. So, if police officers were were better respected, I think when people were were uh, congregating outside a club and they see police officers. They'll behave themselves. It's not that they need to fear the police, uh, but 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 it, it seems that uh, the police don't have, especially those frontline police, uh, they, they don't have a great image, you know, in, in the public mind in Taiwan, which is unfortunate. But I think it links back to the to the poor training.
0: Right, and turning to some business news this week, where High Precision chairman Terry Gwar described Microsoft's decision to bring a lawsuit against his company over patent payments as misguided. Now the story, which is why we're talking about it really, because it got this massive comic book superhero artwork treatment on the front page of the Apple Daily this week. And Ross, you're going to describe that picture to me.
1: Well, it was uh, uh, the CEO of, of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, and, and Hon Hai's uh, chairman, Terry Gore, uh, in, in cartoonish depictions as uh, superheroes, almost uh, good versus evil. I think they made Mr. Gore look uh, a little bit stronger. He was also in white. Uh, yeah so again it was it was good versus evil it was championing the the local entity against the the evil foreign entity uh, the evil american company uh, and Mr go did uh discuss and i 'm giving him the benefit of the doubt using a, a very neutral word discuss uh, although frankly uh, he 's very strong language uh, the The context or what he perceived to be the context of the legal action by Microsoft, and he put it in the context of U.S.-China trade disputes and and that Microsoft might be looking to get U.S. government support for – the actions Microsoft's taking uh, with regard to this legal action. Now, Mr. Guo said, you you're coming after the wrong guy. I- I'm having trouble getting payments from the companies that we manufacture products for, which the Microsoft technology is incorporated into it. Keeping in mind that uh, in most cases, Honhai is making products for other companies. They're a contract manufacturer. Right? And some of these consumer electronic or other products have Microsoft technology incorporated in. And for that, uh, a patent royalty is paid to Microsoft. Uh, the dispute here, again, is Mr. Gross seems to be saying that I didn't get paid by those other companies, so I can't pay Microsoft. Microsoft's saying, well, we don't know the whole story because you, you didn't let us see the records of, what, of the product sales to those companies, and, and you have certain obligations under our agreement to let us inspect those records, and we've, we asked you very nicely. You said no. We asked you nicely again. You said no. So now we have no choice. But, but to sue you. The important thing here is I don't think either side really wants to go to litigation in the United States. Litigation is going to be terribly expensive. Before you even get to court, each side would have to pr- produce extraordinary large volume of records. So all internal emails, conversations, things like that, you'd have to provide to the other side uh, before you even get to court. So that would take a lot of time, and a lot of money to do.
0: So, Brian, do you think Terry Guo is just standing tough against the American imperialist oppression?
2: It's actually very interesting to me because, you know, sometimes uh, you have Terry Guo celebrated as a Taiwanese businessman that's very successful internationally, and other times you see him as a traitor to China that's selling out Taiwan to China. And so this is a case, I think, in which Apple Daily Cover suddenly uh, uh, saw him as a Taiwanese businessman that's standing up to America in some way. That's kind of interesting to me. Um, You know, I think Terry Guo is actually very good at positioning himself relative to many different countries, because at the end of the day, he's a businessman, he borders don't matter to him. Uh, He does business wherever I mean, that's why he also proposes, for example, relocating factories to India, maybe from China, despite Um, how much factories he has there, or building factories in America, try to build better relations with the Trump administration, apparently. And this time around, he has tried to play a Taiwanese victim that he is under assault from the U.S. because of the U.S.-China trade war being unfairly targeted, but at the end of the day he's Taiwanese, and so he's not really part of this. I mean, you notice that actually the the publicity photos or when he appears in public regarding this issue, he's wearing a hat with the ROC on it, the ROC flag. And I think that's actually very deliberate on his part. I think he's positioning himself as, as unfairly caught in between because he thinks this is the most advantageous way for him to get out of the situation.
0: Right, and before we go this week, the US ambassador at large for international religious freedom was in the island, and he attended the Civil Society Dialogue on Securing Religious Freedom in the Indo-Pacific Region Forum, in Taipei. Now, the two-day event was organised by the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, and it brought together religious leaders from more than 15 countries for discussions on how to better protect and promote religious freedom, and encourage interfaith dialogue and cooperation. Now, the actual event was a closed door event there was of course the u.s ambassador at large made a public speech but the rest of it was closed door and it, it was about religious freedom it was closed door I'm, I'm not even going there but ross apparently you were allowed behind those closed doors
1: oh uh, yes in my capacity as chairman of the taipei jewish center i was invited to attend the event uh, ambassador brownback is is an extraordinary advocate for uh, religious freedom uh, and uh, actually, something that he mentioned, other speakers mentioned, which is quite interesting, was that uh, it's, it's the freedom to worship or the freedom not to worship are are both important. And, and uh, in the context of some countries in Asia where, where there's a dominant re- religion, um, you know, maybe people don't want to practice that religion or they practice a minority religion. They want to be free to do that as well. So uh, very, very interesting Uh, concepts. There are representatives of of the world's major religions and and representatives of some of the oppressed religious uh, groups um, by religion or by organization um, from around Asia. Uh, Whether or not uh, these representatives are looking to Taiwan to be the platform or the beacon for religious freedom advocacy going forward remains to be seen. But uh, we know uh historically uh taiwan gets a lot of recognition for uh being a democracy for having freedom of speech and you know, a free media and religious freedom but it doesn't often um uh, play that kind of adv- advocacy role within asia uh, keeping in mind this was an Asia-focused, Indo-Pacific-focused forum, uh, because the lack of government-to-government interaction. So, for example, uh, at, at the close of this conference, the Taiwan government announced that it was appointing its own ambassador for international religious freedom. So they're just copying the American concept. Uh, so now somebody has been appointed a, a Christian pastor um, from here in Taiwan. But will he be able to go to other countries in, in Asia and advocate for religious freedom Well, we know how difficult it is for Taiwan government officials to visit other countries or to do so in any kind of public capacity. So maybe he'll get he'll be invited and be allowed to enter other countries to attend forums about religious issues, but maybe not something as sensitive as as advocacy. I mean, will Vietnam or which uh, oppresses uh, both Buddh- Buddhist and Catholic organizations, uh, allow him to come to Vietnam and, and, and tell the Vietnamese government that you need to have more religious freedom, I wouldn't be very optimistic for that.
2: And yeah, the Thai machine does actually prioritize sometimes having good ties with the government in Asia, even if it's, it is actually oppressing religious freedoms, because Taiwan, in their view, just needs whatever allies it has. And the Vietnamese government is actually a good example. Um, and so that, that also raises a number of questions. Um, Taiwan, is, as usual, just tries to play up you know, freedom of press, freedom of religion, and so forth. Um, concrete steps towards that are, are sometimes harder to see. And again, a lot of it is really just bound up in the issue of Taiwan's lack of recognition. There's always, It's another one of these recurring news stories we have. Is the Pope going to sign a deal with China? Um, we were just talking about the Dalai Lama, who is also a religious leader. Um, how, will he actually you know accept a, a taiwan visit if, if that would happen or will that materialize um, all the, all these questions are up in there and it is really d- deeply bound with the kind of Taiwan's marginality
1: in the world interesting though about you know, the, the tibet and, and this forum the dalai lama if the dalai lama comes to taiwan you know, it doesn't really change it's not going to give more religious freedom to tibetans in china mm-hmm. right and, and taiwan is not going to be able to play a role in that you know the dalai lama goes everywhere Mm -hmm. other than Taiwan and China uh, at Hong Kong. Uh, So he he travels constantly. If he comes to Taiwan, it might be a big deal here. But it's not going to be a big deal to the Dalai Lama or to the global movement to support mm. Tibet. And again, it's not going to bring more religious freedom to Tibetans if the Dalai Lama comes to Taiwan. There's similar proposals but to, to have a pope, the Pope visit Taiwan,
2: um, which would that better China's – the situation of Christians in China, Catholics under persecution, probably not, but it spotlights Taiwan. And so that's generally the government strategy, I think, with these uh, forums that it continually holds.
0: Because, of course, Tsai wen did repeat her, please come to Taiwan, the Pope, this week.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's just another one of these uh, appeals that, that occurs recurrently, if not to religious leaders and to political leaders to visit Taiwan and, and so forth. And that way bolster Taiwan's international standing.
0: But Ross, the Dalai Lama or the Pope, which one do you see coming to
1: Taiwan first? Uh, Neither or one of them? Well, I, I think it's almost impossible for the, for the Pope to visit given how they're trying to warm relations, given that there is precedent for the Dalai Lama visiting Taiwan shouldn't surprise us if the government approves his visa. And again, because it's, as we were talking earlier, because it's before the election, we should be even less surprised if the government decides to, to approve his visa. But uh, n- neither uh, action w- would help the religious freedom situation that this forum was was seeking to address. So Going forward, uh, what role Taiwan can play, uh, it, it's really unknown. And, and there's another important aspect of that is – very often at this forum, we're talking about religions that uh, are not prominent here in Taiwan. We're talking about minority groups that are not prominent here in Taiwan. So Tibetans are, are fairly well known. Look, we have a legislator like Freddie Lim who's taken a very high-profile advocacy role for, for Tibet. Um, so, so Tibet, like it is in many parts of the world, is pretty well known. Uh, but, but some of the other groups that, that are oppressed and were the focus of discussion at the forum, like the Rohingya Muslims in, in, uh, in Myanmar or a yard christians um you know, uh, ethnic minority and a religious minority in vietnam uh, christians in uh indonesia who face uh, some discrimination sometimes even violence like these are not issues that the taiwan public is very familiar with or frankly very often uh, especially because i represent a, a minority religious organization i find even say the scholar community in Taiwan is often not very familiar with um, religious minorities, though they might have a lot of expertise with, with the religions that are present here in Taiwan. Uh, so, so whether or not there's that uh, nexus of, of knowledge and interest in Taiwan by the public or other stakeholders separate from the government to put resources into Taiwan being an advocate for re- religious freedom really uh, remains to be seen. Right, and that's all we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This
0: Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps. We can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news, only on ICRT-FM100.